Angela, and welcome to Real Indigenous. With me are our regular guests. Holly Cho, this is Tully. Maduwika, this is Sunrise. And leading our discussion tonight is going to be Matt. This is Matt Bars. Hey, welcome. Yeah, Robbie Robertson. He passed away last August, August 9th, 2023. That had a a bit of big effect on me. And as I was thinking about it, I was reflecting on his career. Robbie Robertson um, was not the front man of the band, but he was kind of the musical genius behind the band, the the musical combo. I could give a recap of their history, but kind of a good start. I I watched a documentary uh, the other day called Once Were Brothers, and it gives a really detailed history on his start as a living on... um, I'm sorry, he didn't live on an Indian reserve. His mom, his mother was born and raised on a Six Nations Indian reserve. And he would visit relatives there when he was young. That's where he was first inspired by uh, drum and song and dance. Kind of got his musical ear from his first inspirations from being being around that. Rockabilly came around and then so kind of a fusion of native song and dance with rockabilly and kind of just it sparked his creativity. Started touring, or he had a band when he was 15. He toured with uh, Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. Met Lee Von Helm through there, uh, the drummer for uh, <clears throat> for the band. Kind of just had this wild career, just at a really young age. Met Bob Dylan. They became Bob Dylan's backup band. No one liked them. The, the Bob Dylan's fans hated them all. So then they kind of went into seclusion and uh, moved to Woodstock. I don't know, like I said, this, this is all covered in the... Um, the documentary once were brothers my experience with robbie robertson started out kind of i was in my tw- my 20s late 20s early 30s when i first really started paying attention to him and my dad would always tell a really neat story of when he was dad was a big robbie robertson fan got all his solo stuff he was watching the last waltz directed by martin scorsese if you guys haven't seen it it's this kind of amazing concert film documentary kind of detailing the last concert of the band i wasn't home at the time but my sister was she must have been in her teens and she had no exposure to these musicians didn't know anything about them but this concert film was on and she came in at the beginning and didn't ask any questions she just sat down and started watching it and was just kind of transfixed with everything that was going on so that would that got me more interested in the group. And I was discovering Martin Scorsese. Well, I'd, I'd known about Martin Scorsese back then, but I didn't know his uh, documentary work. It's kind of a groundbreaking documentary. First concert film shot on 35 millimeter. Sunrise and I watched it again a few weeks ago. Did you have any new responses to rewatching it on the big screen? Yeah, I'd never seen it on the big screen. We went and saw it because they restored it and they had like a, a revival of it. A retro redistribution of the film and we saw on the big screen yeah i don't know how many times i've seen that film before i really don't know but i felt like i knew the film well enough to know what the songs were and who the actors were or who the stars were going to be when they come on stage but seeing it again on the big screen i was paying attention to things that i'd never seen before and then just the energy of the performances and the stars that came on screen just played bigger in a way that was really dramatic and I had, uh, had never experienced the film that way. And it really reaffirmed my interest in the band and also in Robbie's talent mm-hmm. uh, on the large screen. I feel like I was really able to get a sense of his physicality when he's playing the guitar, how he's interacting with the band ma- mates when he's in the middle of playing and glancing over and Scorsese and his team uh, really do a great job of capturing the intimacy between bandmates in that particular concert film. Just like the looks they give to each other. and Absolutely. Um, yeah. Like there are moments where it seems like I didn't notice that maybe there was improv or like they were going into areas where there were, there were unknowns, uh, unknown circumstances that were going to happen, but just like seeing the glances and how they're going to respond. Like the, the moment that Bob Dylan gets up there and Bob Dylan shifts from one song into another, but he sort of like, I guess gives a gesture as to what kind of like time shift they're going to shift into, but they have no idea what the song is going to be. And just like them glancing at each other, trying to figure out what direction they're going to go with the song so that they don't mess up is a really amazing moment. Or just like the way we could see Robbie Robertson playing 
the strings of the guitar when Eric Clapton and he kind of like go toe to toe and and sort of like moments where they're kind of almost, you know, it's a it's the guitar battle and just on the big screen, just like seeing the energy and then seeing the string work. It, it was so impressive. It really felt like I was there. And there's nothing like seeing a concert film on a big screen where they really they shoot it in a way where it feels like they're on stage right in front of you. You know, I feel like stop making sense is a little bit like that. This year in concert films, it's interesting just comparing it to like, you know, the Eras tour where it feels like she is definitely very far in the distance. It doesn't feel like I'm at a Taylor Swift concert so much as like a, a recording from a very great distance. But this, it felt like I was so close to the stage. It felt like at times they were the size on the screen as they would have been in real life. And just where the camera goes and the way in which it captures the energy and the environment of like the movement of musicians. Um, and again, like the gestures of the look, it's all really incredible, amazing film. If you haven't seen it, you've got to see it just in general. you got to see it. You were talking about Eric Clapton. Did you catch when he was playing that his guitar strap breaks? No, I didn't. And he has to kind of, he turns around and he has to get it put back together. And that's part of why Robbie kind of jumps in. They talk mm -hmm. about that in the documentary. And I'm like, I didn't even see that. Yeah, I didn't and they see show that they show the clip in in the doc. I'm like, oh, it's it's right there. But your attention or my attention was so onto the two the two guys. Well, you talk about the energy. I mean, it's shot like a Scorsese film. Just it's got all these really interesting camera moves. Um, he's interviewing them in like in in between segments. Yeah, you know, and I keep saying to my people who will listen. <laughs> I keep saying that I really think that Scorsese, <laughs> those that are interested in Scorsese should really look at it because I feel like he really figured out his style. I think we always kind of attribute his style as some, you know, films that he references from, you know, old Hollywood. But I feel like he has really figured out the timing of when a camera moves in relation to action and then how those things cut together in the last waltz. So like after that film, you watch the rest of his films and they really feel like the last waltz more than... 1930s movies and, and 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 then also like just the way in which he's utilizing the team like who's operating the cameras are like working at a high level because they're all like cinematographers and then thinking about it as cinema and not just like a record you know all, all those things really propel him into the direction that he goes now where he's like making a documentary he's making a fiction film and then they kind of influence each other in terms of the way they're shot and the way they're cut and the way they're structured and I really feel like it's it's out of this film where that starts to really become, you know, the way that we think about Scorsese as like a master of cinema or whatever. When we saw it, you mentioned, I didn't realize this, the, uh, the, the concert film was on November 25th, 1976 at San Francisco's Winterland Ballroom. Hundreds, if not maybe verging on thousands, I don't know, but definitely hundreds of audience members, very large lines, cold winter. Um, in San Francisco, and we're talking November 25th, right? So, like, this is a Thanksgiving period. You mentioned that there was, like, this Thanksgiving element. They they fed everyone before the, the show, fed the audience. Yeah, so that's Robertson's, maybe not the first moment where they work together, but it seems like that's a major starting point for both of their collaborations moving forward, if we're talking about Scorsese and Robbie Robertson. It looks like he was doing stuff without Scorsese before they were doing stuff together. I came across a movie called Carney. Never heard of Carney until the other day. Uh oh, what? Well, I mean, The Last Waltz is 1978. Yes. Right? And the uh, concert film was 1976. So working with Scorsese in 76, at least when they're shooting, Carney is 1980 uh -huh. when it's released. You know, it's probably shot in 70 or early 80. But it, the, there's an important element here is that there's a producer, I think, that links both films. Oh, okay. Jonathan Taplin, who started with Scorsese on Mean Streets, but was one of the producers on Last Waltz, and then becomes one of the producers with Robbie Robertson on this film called Carney from 1980. And I'm kind of like being a catch-up person. There was a documentary about Bob Dylan's 1966 tour with Robbie Robertson and the Hawks. It was called mm -hmm. Eat the Document. And that was directed by D.A. Pennebaker. Yeah. And so that happened. That's probably like the first doc and the first time he's been on film. 
And so last waltz was 1978, Carney was 1980. And in that same year, he worked with Scorsese on Raging Bull in 1980. Yeah, Penny Baker, you know, a lot of people consider Penny Baker and Robert Leacock to kind of be these progenitors of a new style of documentary form, which is, you know, quote unquote, fly on the wall. What, what um, style is it called, Sunrise? Cinema Verite, right? So the idea is that it's it's just an observing camera and there's no quote unquote talking heads, no official person with a title on screen and they, they kind of intercede footage of action with, um, you know, an interview that responds with facts or restating what they were thinking or whatever you know leacock and penny baker they had these 16 millimeter cameras that were shoulder mounted you know this is sort of like what was utilized for the news and they were finding a way to to because of the size of the camera this is like you know the advancement of technology they'd be able to get into spaces that were very tight and the camera would be less imposing and a lot more handheld movement which up to that point was not as common. But because of all of those things, they were often cited as creating a new style of making documentaries. You know, Don't Look Back as an example of this, just speaking about Bob Dylan, for example, and like concert work. And a lot of people cite that particular film as sort of like changing a element of documentaries that focus on musicians. And uh, certainly it, people cite it as like something where it's like very intimate you know, just sort of like all of these things are happening in this time period. Uh, there's another film that they that they worked on with Robert Drew called Primary. And that was sort of like also cinema verite, looking at John F. Kennedy during the primary of uh, 1960, hence the title Primary. Now, I'm bringing all this stuff up because I think all of these things have some influence and bearing on Scorsese and maybe the way in which he's thinking about how he's interviewing and talking to the band members as well as Robertson in the documentary, you know, in this way, he's also thinking about history of cinema and he's thinking about the style and Penny Baker is also directly related to the uh, Monterey pop documentary, which I think Scorsese kind of worked on like as an editor, I think. And this is also coming out of the time where there's momentous documentaries about music like Woodstock, which I think, of course, they might have also worked on all, all these things are kind of, you know, spinning around at the start of Scorsese's career. And I think they have some influence on him when he starts making these movies in the late 70s, like 10 years later from Monterey Pop. I think he brings those elements back when he, you know, makes the Rolling Stones film Shine a Light. So anyway, just just to kind of clarify the time periods, I guess, or like the sequence of events i think carney is definitely a direction where robbie robertson is sort of producing taking a lead in filmmaking he's on screen in that film in a major way but he's also writing the story and all those things seem to be maybe what he's taking from scorsese so there's sort of like these elements of leapfrog or like scorsese's learning things from some other people in one area and then they have some sort of influence on robbie robertson it's a it's a pretty good performance but can you describe the narrative a little bit? What, what do you? How would you describe the plot of Carney from 1980? Let's see. Young waitress meets a. He doesn't like to be. He's not a clown. He's a. Oh, I forget what he refers. It's uh, Gary Busey's character. Um, she meets him, and he's a. They get dunked in the the, the dunk tank. It's it's not. A, I can't think of. There's a. Right. The dunk might tank. Might be a word for it. Yeah. Robertson runs the carnival. It's a traveling carnival, and she kind of wants to get and like get away from her mundane life. And so she gets involved with two men that are much older than she, much older than she is. Yeah, in the film, the character is eighteen years old. Is she eighteen? Yeah, she's listed as right because he does a guessing game. Gary Busey plays this game where he like guesses information Mm -hmm. about people, and he like looks at her, and he's like, "You are." You are 18, but you're turning 19 in November or something like that, right? And she smiles because he's right, and he's gotten it without her revealing any information. This is like how we learn how Gary Busey is talented at his his carnival craft of reading yeah. people. And so we learn that she's 18 years old in the film, and they're mm-hmm. obviously not 18. But in real life, Jodie Foster was 16 during the shooting of this film. 
No, I think this is just important because, you know, like the the film, even though it like tries to legalize the character, there's, you know, uncertainty and it might make viewers uncomfortable if they watch this particular film. It was like when Maya and I were watching it, it, we were definitely like getting very concerned about how Jodie Foster was 16 in real life. And it's like hard to divorce the reality uh, of these of these men who are much older and there are scenes of intimacy, it, not unlike Taxi Driver, which was much earlier and sort of maybe pigeonholes Jodie Foster in this sort of period of her career. But just so people are aware that, that that's the circumstance in the film. But yeah, so Jodie Foster, yeah, she plays 18-year-old Donna who stumbles into the carnival world. And you just get to see the shady dealings of what what goes on during the carnival, what goes on behind the scenes of the carnival. I did read that uh, Robertson was uh, around carnivals as a kid, and this was kind of maybe not necessarily based on his experiences, but stuff that he was interested in. And then, you know, traveling with his band, I think that had a lot of to do with the, the narrative also. Yeah, you can certainly see the similarities, right? Yeah, like the fact yeah. that there's like a traveling group and it's like a motley group. And mm-hmm. then like, I'm sure you develop relationships on the road, just like they do with people from small towns that they visit. And and it's sort of wheeling and dealing that seems to happen. And maybe the uncontrollable nature and partying and, and all that jealous, stuff. Jealousy. Yeah. And then being like roommates on a, on a vehicle. There's both a transport and a living space that's very cramped. This also, I guess, is related to the band in that like there's a song entitled life is a carnival and i guess somehow his own personal experiences of understanding the circus or the carnivals are a part of that particular song and i think that somehow plays a part into his interest in the story at least according to this thing i'm reading it says that when he was 14 he worked in a traveling carnival circuit they're saying that kind of influenced his song life is a carnival in the movie carney whether it's true or not. Don't quote me on this because I'm just reading like crazy fucking Wikipedia and all this other shit I'm finding as listening to y'all talk. So I, mean, I I certainly see how it like why he's the right person to maybe make this film and this story. And his role in it really is is kind of like he's very sobering and very mature character in that like he's like a decision maker and he's always concerned about whether they're going to make the money, if they're going to have a good relationship with the town, whether or not they're making enough money before they leave to the next town and he's kind of concerned a little bit about the psychology of the people that are involved especially this young jody foster so it seems like he's very like level-headed in a way that makes me think that he might be that kind of character in his own band mm-hmm. you know like when you look at either of the documentaries and including the last waltz there's like a lot of emphasis of how these characters are like the bandmates are surprising in the acts that they take they're uncontrolled there's an element of chaos you know this sort of proto-punk free lifestyle so you can see how maybe things get out of hand he always seems level-headed in the interviews that are both in that documentary and afterward it feels like he is also somewhat you know playing that role in real life probably i'm sure there's some accidental autobiography that might intercede or maybe intentional but it feels like if this is the one film where we get Robbie Robertson as like a major character or a major actor and his character is also a major character in the story this feels like it's appropriate to get the closest we can to a fictionalized version of maybe what it's like with him in his mm-hmm. life at that time how was the acting skills Matt liked it I thought it was pretty good what Sunrise say yeah <laughs> I thought he was pretty good I, I I thought it was pretty good for somebody who probably had little to no acting training. I believed it. I felt like he was expressing what the character felt. I felt like he was always like directed well enough for it made sense in a scene. And I felt like the character was slowly starting to be revealed. It was not just like surface performance, like there were things going on underneath. And so all those things I attribute to really good acting. Could he improve if he had spent more time acting it probably he probably would be a better actor 10 years later also he's much better than a lot of non-actors that have never acted before so i thought he was good he could have been better but it's not his fault maybe it was maybe it was the material maybe it was just where he is in his career and so is the movie shit movie as i remembered it because like i told y'all previously is that i saw the movie like when i was a little kid and it was like on tv like late at night and we and i thought it was like a scary movie when i watched it and my memory is that the Tulsa dude, what's his name? 
Busey. Gary Busey. Gary Busey is like <laughs> a bad guy who kind of like brings this girl in and then he starts becoming abusive. And I don't know if that's what the movie is, but that's how I remember it. And I remember he was like a clown. And so that also made it more scary because I thought he was supposed to be like a scary clown and talks with that weird voice. And so, <laughs> and so but my memory is that it was a shit movie, is it? Some most of that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um he, he never does he get he doesn't get abusive, does he? I think he maybe gets, you know, there's a little bit of what we would consider today to be some grooming where he's, you know. Well, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, like he's making her feel comfortable, maybe against her better in thoughts and maybe using his his knowledge to his advantage to kind of like get her in a position where she felt like he was the best thing for her. Mm-hmm. Maybe she, he wasn't. But yeah, I, I mean, what he's describing is it, it is a little horrific and he's scary. I think at times it feels like he's going to go off the hinge at any moment. Oh, and he's like freaking out in the cage. Didn't he fight somebody? Like somebody got or somebody tried to fight him? Yeah, they get into they get in several fights. Like okay, there's a fight that happens in a restaurant and like a truck stop in a restaurant, and then there's definitely a fight that happens like in in the carnival night. He's like he's really taking out his anger on the crowd because he just found out that Jodie Foster was being super intimate, just essentially like post sex with Robbie Robertson's character Patch. And so he like he he's quietly sort of he doesn't take it out on them, but he takes it out on the crowd and he like gets a little bit too aggressive. And that's where there's like this fight across the bars with the, the dunk tank. Holy shit. So I saw this movie like when I was like seven or eight years old. So it's crazy that's in my memory. So <laughs> but I mean the, the, the way it's shot, the way it looks, it feels like it could be a horror movie. It made me think of like Eaten Alive or just anything that looks like that. Yeah, it's definitely gritty and grimy. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, uh, that's props to the cinematographer Harry Stradling, who like did a lot of studio work and, you know, like high key lighting and bright and, you know, happy musicals and all this other stuff. And to go from that into this where it's uh, like, he really gets the grit of it and you really feel it like any like, you know, Texas Chainsaw or whatever. And it's weird because when I watched this recently, I'd never seen it before prepping for all this. Uh, I assumed it was a, the original source for the horror film that is Carney, which I think came out, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> in 2009 or 2008 or y'all fucking carnies but i i remember you know like there was a the carney film a fiction film that was a horror film you know one of my childhood friends was an editor on that i think and so we'd seen that film it's like a demon or whatever hiding underneath this you know workings of a carnival it's got lou diamond phillips so i thought it was going to be a, uh, like the predecessor to that film and maybe at the end there's some similarities, but it's not. Just a little little background information on uh, Robbie Robertson. I don't know if we talked about it. It kind of got lost in all the stuff. We may have said it, but I was going to reiterate. So he was born Jamie Royal Robertson, and he became Robbie Robertson when he started was in a band called Robbie and the Robots, I believe. I could be wrong on that. Like I said, I'm doing a real brief look at this. He's Cayuga and Mohawk, so his people were on the Six Nations at the of the Grand River, which is southwest of Toronto. But he grew up in Toronto, I believe. Mm-hmm. But that's about probably like an hour or so away. I don't know how it was in the 60s or 40s or whenever he was alive. But nowadays, it's about 60 miles away. So he probably spent a lot of time on the on the res because, you know, how like we do whenever we, we have family that lives elsewhere, we, you know, go visit a lot, especially if you're close, we'll definitely go and spend time around the... Um, he kind of started young playing music. How old was he when he joined Ronnie Hawkins? I can't remember, but he was real young. 15. Like 15. 15 yeah. yeah. So Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. Ronnie Hawkins was a real famous guy who did a song called I Put a Spell on You, which plays like on movies every once in a while. And so he, he joined them with who did he join him with? Was he with anybody at the time yet? Or did uh, uh, Levon Helm was yeah. playing with Ronnie? And then that's yeah, Levon Helm. Yeah, yeah Levon Helm. Levon Helms was a big name at that time who was who was well known as we talked about earlier that he's up in the Woodstock area. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of got together and the band changed in the background and they became basically what the band is at the time of the movie that Martin Scorsese shot. 
And I'm not sure how they left Ronnie Hawkins, but they then, like you said, joined Bob Dylan. And so for people who don't know, Bob Dylan was like a real famous folk singer from like the 60s. And he's really well known for like the songs that he he wrote. And at the time, they were like the big, big songs. And one of his probably more famous one is uh, All Along the Watchtower. And most of us know the Jimi Hendrix version, but he wrote that song and it's always played in movies. I think last time I heard it in a movie was uh, Watchmen, the Watchmen movie. So Bob Dylan was just like a single dude who would play acoustic songs and sing to all those dirty hippies and all these songs. But then when he when he got the band to join him, he started playing electric guitar. And I guess like his first time he did it, he got booed off stage, basically. Right. But, well, and they kept booing them. They were going on tour and like they came to expect. It became a thing where they that's uh, why uh, Levon quit for a little while. I was like, I can't take this anymore. Yeah, very controversial, the, the electric elements there, yeah. right? Like, that's part of this, mm-hmm. like, abandoning the roots of folk and including, like, electronics and all the elements of the modern, I guess, you know. Why um, would you buy a ticket to a concert knowing that that was going to happen and then boo the performer? I'm assuming they probably didn't know because back then you didn't have social media to tell us, oh, shit, Bob Dylan's fucking up all the music by playing electronic music. You're probably, like, buying a ticket and showing up, or you're just showing up as a dirty hippie, they're probably all drugged up anyway and thinking that they're just going to have a good time listening to acoustic music, and they're like, who the fuck are this band on the stage? Is how I feel it would have been. Yeah, you right? still had national newspapers, and people would talk while you're standing in line at Safeway to get your tickets for $5. Hey, did you hear about Dylan? He's going electric. I don't know. Maybe word of mouth did, did happen, but I, yeah, I don't know how it how would it reach across the country. Was it a big like article news? Like Rolling Stone was Rolling Stones around at that time? Probably, I would guess so. They've been. Uh, I think so. I think so. Would they have done a story? Because it would be like a month or so later before that story get published. I think that would have been a big deal in that scene, the dirty hippie scene. Yeah, it's a big deal. And it might be like the old story is like, who the fuck shows up like back up when they throw Rotten Tomatoes? So who the fuck shows up with Rotten Tomatoes at a show? <laughs> just so at people. <laughs> so where they just showed up just to boo his ass they off. Ju- yeah, they probably did it just to boo him. <laughs> I don't know how he left Bob Dylan. That part, I don't know. If they just went their separate ways all on their own, if they split up. Do you guys know what happened with that? Oh, I forget. I, I don't have his name. Bob Dylan's producer talked them into moving to Woodstock, and they hung out there and then got a record deal while they were at Woodstock. And that's when Levon came back. They said, "Hey, Levon, come back. We got a record deal." So he came back, and then they released three albums. And then, I think in the in the documentary, it says that the first album was pretty collaborative with the writing. The second album was two thirds Robbie Robertson, and then the third one was all written by Robbie Robertson because everyone else was sleeping in (laughs) he's the one that was yeah consistently writing and Mm -hmm. and almost as a compulsion right that yeah yeah he couldn't stop for whatever reason he wanted to sometimes maybe yeah and Um, i don't know if if it's apocryphal but um the way they got the name of the band is that they were originally the hawks right mm -hmm. but everybody kept saying are you the band are you the band they said yeah we're the band and then eventually they changed the name to the band just so just out of silliness or whatever it is i never heard of him until you know the 80s so how did you counter them mtv probably um who's the guy that did the famous video weird al what famous video michael well, jackson the one with the dance and chicken peter gabriel peter gabriel thank you matt yeah he played with peter gabriel right yeah they did some stuff together okay but then i found lazy river and songs from the what is it? Songs from the Red Man. Contact from the Underworld of Red Boy. Yes, sure. That that that's his. That yeah, that's when like he went, when he went solo. He went solo. Yeah, that's like the nineties. Like yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. after he started doing that score for the Native Americans series on PPS. Mm-hmm. Which is again, I think I said it before, but that's like a badass album. That's like yeah. one of my fucking top albums. I play it. Sometimes. Amazing. I mean, you no, know, talking yeah. about my dad. That that was a big deal when that came out. Like he played that a lot. I guess maybe that was my first exposure to Robert Robertson. I was like, man, he, he was really excited when that came out. Yeah, you, you would hear that music everywhere. I remember, like, I feel like I, I didn't even see much of the series, but I definitely knew the album. And I went to, like, you know, conferences or, like, people's houses and it'd be playing. And, you know, people would have it on 
I don't know, slideshows. People need to go to a presentation with like, you know, a native dinner or whatever, like awards dinner or something. They'd be playing it. Yeah, really impactful that particular moment, it seemed like, or maybe at least it sounds like our generation here is responding to that second round or maybe third round or whatever that was for him. Yeah, I think the their big song was The Weight. Like, I think that gets played a lot, too. I think it was last time they played that in a movie was that the recent Planet of the Apes movie. It played on that film. But The Weight's that one, you know, how it went down to Nazareth. Feeling Half Past did. That's an easy rider. Is it on that, on that it's film, on, too? It's on Easy Rider, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I haven't seen that movie in a long time either. Yeah. A childhood film I watched. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, so then when the last waltz came, they were breaking up because a lot of them were doing other projects. Levon Helm was building a studio in Woodstock and some of them were wanting to do solo. And so they decided to do one final show, the grand finale show, which was wherever, where was it at that, that it took place? You said in California somewhere? It was in San Francisco at the Winterland Ballroom. Okay. Yeah. And so the promoter was Bill Graham, who was like a big time promoter back in the sixties. He was like real famous for, I think he did Woodstock, right? Was he the one who promoted Woodstock? I thought Woodstock was Melvin Belisle. It may have been. Uh, Don't quote me on shit. I'm just making shit up as I go along here. I'm just trying to use my memory. I, I fucking don't remember everything. So what it says here in, you know, you can trust Wikipedia, right? Is that uh, Robertson actually went to Martin Scorsese to direct a film. And so he hired uh, Scorsese and Scorsese wanted to be like, try to be, keep it as like controlled as possible. So they wrote a script out, they did storyboards. So he wanted to make sure like it hit everything. But of course, everything goes ape shit because you're in a live setting. And I think Robertson wanted to do 16 millimeter at first, but Scorsese, because he's Scorsese, wanted to do it in 35. And so some of the badass cameramen who were on that were Michael Chapman, Laszlo Kovacs, and Bilmos Zygmunt. Zygmunt, is that how you say his name? Zygmunt, yeah. Yeah, Zygmunt. And those are like the badasses of that era of cinematographers that were out there filming. And one of them, let me see which one it was. Probably Zygmunt. Zygmunt, yeah, one of them probably getting sick of Scorsese because he's being so exact on how to shoot stuff and get stuff that he took off the headphones so that he would just shoot it himself, not be bothered by Scorsese's constant directing. And so when they were supposed to take a break to change out the film reels, he kept rolling. But they're saying luckily he kept rolling because that's when Muddy Waters played, and if he was the only one who got that film performance. And so Scorsese's like, oh, that's cool. I'm, you know, I'm glad he did that. And I don't know why they fucking all took a break at the same time to change film. Is there a reason why you would do that, Sunrise? I would think you'd do it in bits and pieces. Yeah, you would do it in bits and pieces. Yeah, They might not have known that Muddy Waters was coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe they thought it was a break for the whole concert. Yeah, they could have. Yeah, who knows? And the stage and lighting was designed by Lord Boris Levin, who did the West Side Story and Sound of Music, which is kind of cool. Yeah, you can kind of see that influence in the color design. I think wow. it did New York, New York. Wow. That, that would make sense. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, Laszlo Kovacs. Yeah, he was the one who was getting annoyed by Oh, Kovacs, yeah. Yeah. And so then um, Bob Dylan didn't want it to be filmed when he went up on stage. And he was kind of getting pissed off. So, no, I don't want it because he's doing another documentary. He didn't want it to compete with that documentary. And so everybody, and so like uh, our boy, uh, Robbie Robertson was kind of having a panic attack because he's like, this is like our main performance because it's the reunion of the band with Bob Dylan. You don't want it to be mm-hmm. filmed. We got to get this shit. So Bill Bill Graham, Bill Graham stepped oh, in, Graham. had to step in and make it happen. They kind of like go head to head with them, but he made it happen and they got it to be filmed, got it on there. There was a lot of cocaine used during that shoot too. That was when Scorsese was having the cocaine. And there's also a apocryphal story where they had to edit delicately because Neil Young had smudge of cocaine on his neck so they had i mean his nose so they wouldn't see his cocaine there's a little bit about my understanding of robbie robertson but i always thought he was a badass guitar player i always thought he was a badass singer i just i liked a lot of his fucking lyrics the songs he wrote i mean i was always you know i before i even knew who he was i liked the band it was only like as i got older that i knew he was a native dude and i said oh shit that's cool as fuck and uh, I see his name like on credits, like you said, like of making music and shit like that. So I always knew his name because it's a funny name, Robbie Robertson. Well, now now that I'm more familiar with them, I'm watching when I rewatch certain movies, especially Scorsese movies. I'm I have a new appreciation for like what he brought to those projects as a as a music producer, and he composed composed a few of them. It looks like yeah, yeah, a good amount. And that's kind of the thing that's kind of 
I don't know what the term is, but I would say like cool is because Scorsese was there for his last performance with the band. And then he was there and Scorsese was there for his last, probably his last composition work. For yeah. That. Yeah. For, for killers. Um, I'm seeing here he, he composed color of money. Yeah. Color of money. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that feels, a... that feels like, I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, Oh, that, that totally makes sense. Yeah. I feel like that's where I really started to recognize him. The color of money. And it like, it really hones in on this idea of the blues. You can't say that Scorsese is making a, a blues film without the sound of Robbie Robertson, but mm-hmm. it definitely feels like he's trying to make some sort of cinematic version of whatever a blues song would be. And it, you really hear it there in the color of money, just like the, the sound of the guitar and the maybe a little bit of the reverb and the sort of pluckiness to it, a little bit of you know whatever the other instruments are, harmonica. I remember that really stuck out to me. I was really saddened that like, you know, you couldn't get a color of money score, you know, the way that you can buy like a soundtrack and you hear like LP or CD or whatever. It's got, you know, really good just bar music in the in that soundtrack. But just isolating his music felt like it was not a it was doing a disservice because so much of his influence was really in that. Very similar. I think the color of money is very similar to what the sound of the Irishman is sort of like you know again like maybe a little bit of harmonica like a brass and there's sort of like a, a strumming that happens also in that and it also feels bluesy yeah his music very like what's the word but very like tonally like whoa just like those like you said just bluesy kind of like single notes almost and almost ethereal i guess is a term and i really like that about it when he does on his films yeah, and that's it. That's his skill as a musician, specifically, like as a composer, and perhaps even like actually playing the music. And you know, like I guess we're all talking about how there's some sense of him. Maybe, maybe there's some sense of the improv nature in Killer's soundtrack. But there's also a talent that he has as like being this music producer for like Scorsese. You know, like he starts as a consultant with Casino, and then really comes full force as this guiding element of a major music producer for Gangs of New York and the Shutter Island, Wolf of Wall Street, everything almost after Gangs of New York. And if we hear those soundtracks, it's a, it's a compilation of history, really. It, it spreads a great knowledge across time and geography and musical backgrounds. And it's not just like the way that we think about like the soundtrack of Mean Streets or Goodfellas, which is like hits, you know, pop hits that you would hear on the jukebox or the radio if it's like Goodfellas. But it's maybe, t- you know, taking that idea to what would be heard in these spaces of gangs in New York and, you know, hearing African music, we're hearing kind of like maybe Irish hymns, we're hearing also probably some indigenous elements in there. And, and especially like if you just listen, like if you close your eyes and listen to the first sequence where the characters are walking through different spaces and you definitely hear how music plays a part of what America is, the sort of melting pot of all these different cultures. That's a great talent to know all of that music history. That's where we where we really get a sense of what Robbie Robertson probably is pulling from when he's thinking about making his own compositions and you know, it's impressive with Gangs of New York and then Shutter Island kind of shifts into like modern classical music and it feels like it rivals the great music compositions that we hear in Kubrick movies or, you know, Terrence Malick movies. It really feels like those are taking the idea of source music to a higher art form. And just the fact that he's like representing like indigenous presences like Gangs of New York, perhaps a little bit in silence and Killers, it feels like there's an influence of like an indigenous thinking and making making sure that we're included in the artistic con- like producing and conclusion of what a soundtrack is and it's not just pop music it's you know it's totally right but it's also like thinking about history and representation it feels like those things kind of get overlooked because we associate with scorsese maybe or that we associate robbie robertson with just the band and as being a musician but it feels like he's really thinking about all those things with these films they're sort of experimental like silence the silence soundtrack really is taking these music 
artists. They're not necessarily just musicians, but they're dealing with the the quality of sound of animals, bugs, wind, water, and then combining them in a way where they're rhythmically related to what's going on in the scene. They work like their music, and that's a really kind of like twentieth, late twentieth century, early twenty first century concept of what can count as music not just instruments but you know things that are out in the world i think there's some element of indigeneity in there just like thinking about when you go to a space and listening to the elements that are around you the earth the wind the animals and um, the fact that he was able to recognize that and then also just put enough money behind all that so that these musicians have the right support and financing to not just record it but also like make a cd out of it you know, like that there's great trust that there's an audience that's going to pay at that point in 2016, probably like 16 bucks for a CD when like CD sales are probably in decline. So there's also like a great, uh, maybe proactive nature of this indigenous individual thinking about maybe how art forms can be indigenized. That's really amazing. Yeah, it sounds like that was really on his mind. Like, yeah, the late 90s or when when he started doing solo work getting into composing um, he says that much, that much in the interview that he was kind of going back to his native roots uh, especially when making the red boy album yeah and you can probably sense it a little bit in that music for the native americans album that's got some great tracks on it but i think he always kind of cited peter gabriel um, elements of passion right which was like the score Peter Gabriel did for The Last Temptation of Christ. I don't know if they had any interaction on that particular film, but it feels like, again, there's sort of like this call and response of like looking at something oh, that's absolutely. happening. Yeah. But yeah, there, there, there's some things that are going on in that one that are really amazing. That's and, an amazing soundtrack. Oh, it's so incredible. Like Oof. the Ghost Dance song just moves me every time I hear it. I just am moved to a point where I can't not well up. It, it, I remember there were times where you hear like just the vocalization of like certain tribes it was like one of the first times where i heard the comanche tribe in a song in a way that felt like it was not like exploitive and it felt like it was like really connecting to something that mm -hmm. made some sense to what i understood culturally and, it, and that was really powerful and that that was the first time i was really introduced to ulali it's sort of like uh, i don't know if it was a trio or a, a group of four women right that were performing what, what do you call it when it's just like just your voice? What is that called? Acapella. Um, acapella. But yeah, acapella women's group, really beautiful sounds and multi tribes, um, multi nations, but three or four female singers with maybe some male backups. And it was the first time I was introduced to them. And I know that they, you know, had their own albums of their own. And it introduced me to that it's sort of like, I don't know if that's like world music at that time probably classified as world music and i know that they went to woodstock like the 90s woodstock instrumental and in introducing me to the that group the bad woodstock <laughs> bad woodstock well, well i mean that? like there there were two the 90s woodstocks, right yeah there was like the 94 and then 99 or 98 i can't remember was the 94 one that was when things got things got muddy muddy yeah and then the second... got that? is that the doo doo yeah. one yeah, yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Got People shitty. You think it money got shitty. <laughs> and then the second time around, it was like the Pepsi Woodstock, right? Where they like <laughs> they sponsored it and it was like it's like the electric guitar of sponsorship. <laughs> it was the boy it was the boy band version of <laughs> commercialization. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, isn't that the one that they tore down all of the the bathrooms? No, the scaffolding around the stage. There was like Green Day, and everybody was angry, angry, oh, right? In and yeah, tearing stuff up. And I feel like that was '94. Maybe not. not. Maybe not. Remember. Gotta, gotta go watch those documentaries. Yeah, they're out there. Music documentaries. Yeah. So what are what are some memorable performances of Robbie Robertson or the band? Well, I mean, you you should watch the Last Waltz because I feel like that, that's those are important performances. I don't know very much about like live stuff besides like what's happening in albums. It was so like before my time to really comprehend like live the band. You never showed up on Midnight Special or American. In, in, in the in the documentary, 
once were brothers they talked about um they had to cancel their first either their first show or their first tour because someone got in a car wreck rick rick maybe rick denko maybe uh I, so they, they released this album but no one they didn't play for a year i think after the album was released because this guy got in a serious had a serious injury so people were talking about him before they even performed and didn't see him for for a while but yeah i, I can't I mean, besides the last waltz, I can't think of no variety shows, no setting a chair. I remember there was like some sort of cable access where they played the Native American song. You can find that on YouTube. Like, well, Maya and I will put that on every now and then and just listen to that session. Send us the link. No, send the link. We can put it on our link tree. Put it in the show notes too, if you can. Didn't they perform at Woodstock One, the band? They never talked about that in the documentary, so I'm not sure if they did. I feel like they did. I'm trying. To... Oh, it's... okay. Here it is. They performed at the Woodstock Festival, but it was not included in the film because of legal complications. On day three, they were the fourth performer. Okay. Sunday night, August seventeenth, from ten o'clock to ten fifty p.m. And then they performed at the UK Isle of Wight Festival, which was kind of a big festival at that era. And several songs were on Dylan's self-portrait album. But yeah, they they I guess they played at Woodstock. They played chest Never fever. Wild at live at Wembley or live at Beacon. I don't know, Angela. You really brought this to a halt. Sorry. <laughs> Fuck you, then Sunrise. God, why you got to be an asshole about shit, dude? <laughs> Just trying to help out, man. Y'all fucking I, it up. I I, I, I try to know. fill in some blanks for maybe some of our younger listeners. Although yeah, I'm I know myself with sending a share show. Man, the the younger listeners, the youngsters listen to old stuff these days well old is like weezer and and blink oh. and blink so maybe yeah. i should maybe i should that's know, not true I, I you know i have some faith that they're listening you know like i saw you know i see nirvana shirts on people <laughs> yeah but just because you wear the band shirt doesn't mean that you listen to it that's very true my kid says they listen to acdc back in black oh that's cool that's a good one what's the other fucking song y'all listen to that you said but again much later than the band oh she listens to all that shit she does i don't know if the rest of the world does but it does oh acds they were kind of 70s probably late 70s with the first singer as maybe a final question for all of us if we had to make a suggestion for people who are first time experiencers of robbie robertson where do you guys suggest they start for me robert robertson natives i would say that native soundtrack what was it called the Native Americans. The Native American soundtrack. Because that's the shit that gets you fucking fired to me, but I'll be like, oh yeah, that shit's good. I get in that motherfucker. Like I say, I ask some bitches on my playlist like all the time it pops up and I'm all, and I like listen to it. I don't just like try to fast forward none of that shit. So that one I would say that one. And like if you like concert films, I would say watch that last waltz. If you like those old school cats like that, because like Bob Dylan's in it, um, Neil Young. Eric Clapton, fucking, uh, what's her name? Sings that California song everybody likes. Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell. Yeah, all those fuckers. All kinds of those fuckers from that era. If you're like into that history of that music and if you're a Martin Scorsese fan or a concert fan, music concert fan, I would say watch those shits. I feel like with that doc, even if you don't know all the people that are playing, you're going to know the music. I mean, at some point in your life, you've heard the way yeah, the night they drove down old Dixie or, down. Yeah, just I mean, mm-hmm. you're you're gonna hopefully get into it just for a song recognition, and then maybe learn a little bit about the, the musicians behind it. Yeah, I mean, if you've seen Reservation Dogs, the the finale, you probably have heard the wait. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think everybody's heard that song. They just don't realize that's what that song mm-hmm. was. I didn't right, ever, exactly. knew, I never knew the title of the song. I always just yeah, like what is the name of that song? I had to just sing it. Went down to Nazareth. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do listen to Robbie Robertson, like the film documentary says, it should be played loud. Yeah. Well, I vote his first solo album, Broken Arrow. Broken Arrow. Oh, yeah. I love Broken Arrow. That shit's the bomb, too. I love that one. And what was it? Late Crazy River. Yep, yep, yep. I have that album. I dig it. That plays on my playlist, too. Well, I think we can all say that this was a huge loss for Indian country film scores. I mean, 
this is a guy, multi-talented, decades of work, somebody that you need to know, especially if you're a native kid. I hope that he inspires somebody to take it to the next level when it comes to scoring film and creating some amazing albums. Any last thoughts? I think it's just hard to conceive of his impact, really. I think we have an idea roughly, but no. I mean, just talking about it is just, it affected me when I found out it kind of ruined my day. But I mean, the more we talk about it, the more we go back about his career. And I'm discovering stuff still. I didn't know he was in his other acting credit was The Crossing Guard. If <laughs> the Crossing acting. Guard. That's crazy. Um, I've seen that movie. I had no idea. I, I, I didn't, it didn't register that was him. The, talking about his albums, his solo albums, his film scores. I mean, yeah, huge loss. But I mean, hopefully, like Angelo was saying, inspiring for people to continue that. Oh, yeah. Definitely, man. He's a BAMP, you know, badass motherfucker. Because he fucking, uh, you don't think about how many people he's worked with or how he's interacted with cats or who he's touched with his music by even just being there physically because you see that, like the list of music that he's worked with, list of albums he's worked on, list of soundtracks he's been on that you realize, holy shit, dude. Just He also did like some Oliver Stone's work, right? He did some music for that. He's done, like you said, acting. He's So he's been out there and we just kind of like, he's just kind of been just a cat who's like, you just knew was Robbie Robertson, but then you realize, holy shit, that's, big fucking Robbie Robertson. He's done a lot of bunch of shit. And so he was a native dude, First Nations dude. So on top of that, and you're like, oh, fuck. And so to me, that's always been an inspiration when he, whenever I think about Robbie Robertson and his music. I always loved his music. You know, he, was, he wasn't just a good cat who made shit music. He actually made good music. So he's a badass. Like I said, play his music loud. Well, Kriana, for joining us. And remember to find us on social rate and review and visit our Patreon. Maybe someday we'll have some stuff there. It would really inspire us if somebody actually signed up for it, then we would actually have to make stuff. And we're on Facebook on Real Indigenous Podcast, Twitter, Real underscore Indigenous, and Instagram, Real Indigenous Pod. And be sure to tune in, same Indigenous time, same Indigenous channel. And remember, don't just keep it real, keep it Real, Real indigenous. Almost. Sunrise didn't fuck it up though that time. Me? Yeah. Oh no, I didn't. <laughs>